From our studio in San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, this is Salt and Spine. My hope is that one day students and others who are inspired by these stories will perhaps find a whole other strain of information and sources to tell us more about what it means to have cooked African-American food. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, stories behind cookbooks. And welcome back. We're back from our winter break, and we're thrilled to kick off our weekly chats with your favorite cookbook authors. And a big thanks to you, our devoted listeners, for allowing us a slightly longer break this winter. I've been busy welcoming my first baby, along with a new shelf for baby food cookbooks, of course. And I heard from many of you who have been eager for new episodes. So here we go. We are thrilled to kick off spring 2020 with today's guest, Tony Tipton Martin. A trailblazing food journalist, Tony won the James Beard Award for her 2016 book, The Jemima Code, Two Centuries of African-American Cookbooks. That work builds on her several decades of collecting and researching Black cookbooks, showcasing 150 of them as, quote, a powerful model of culinary wisdom and cultural authority. And now, Tony's followed up the groundbreaking Jemima Code with a companion cookbook, Jubilee, Recipes from two centuries of African-American cooking. In today's show, we're talking with Tony about what prompted her to begin collecting Black cookbooks, how she gives home cooks a window into those books through the recipes in Jubilee, and how she thinks about her work and uplifting other voices today. And of course, it's not salt and spine without a game, so stick around for our dinner party-themed game. Plus, in today's show, kitchen correspondent Sarah Varney is headed into the kitchen to tackle a recipe from Jubilee, the Low Country Shrimp and grits. You won't want to miss it. And of course, we've got recipes from Jubilee for you to make in your home kitchen. All of that this week on Salt and Spine. So let's head now to our studio inside the Civic Kitchen Cooking School in San Francisco, where Tony Tipton Martin joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Tony. How are you? Hey, it's so good to be here. It's great to have you on Salt and Spine. Thank you so much for joining us. And we always like to start with our guests by talking about your life a little bit and what brought you to food and the culinary world. So we like to start at the beginning. So you grew up in Los Angeles, is that right? I did. And uh, I thought that working at this local weekly newspaper would be a great way for me to jump into the industry before my fellow graduates uh, did. And those folks asked me to work on the food section. And journalism was sort of your first passion, maybe before food, right? Like, Absolutely. I think I read that even in elementary school, you were working on the elementary paper. I you were the was. editor. How about that? I've, I've still got those. Uh, awesome. That little newspaper is pretty cute. That's pretty great. What role did food play in your life growing up then when you were young? You know, I think I have a love-hate relationship with food. Okay. Um, I don't know that I've said that out loud until just this moment. Okay. Um, so goody for you. You're for not extracting the only one. That. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I grew up with a uh, vegetarian mother. And after she she lost my grandmother. She became really, really intensely obsessed with healthy living and uh, turned our house, our kitchen into a um, laboratory. Okay. So, you know, we had, she was sipping uh, garlic on a teaspoon before anybody was talking about garlic pills. And sure. um, we always had this blender with collard green goo in it where she would puree greens fresh. Yeah. Um, you know, like the juices that we're getting now, she was definitely... Um, ahead of her time. Um, and so that worked really well for me going into the LA Times where I became a nutrition writer. I think the two just dovetailed. So it became a little bit hard to 
you know, be passionate about food if you're constantly thinking about the nutrition uh, qualities of yeah. what you're putting in your mouth. Sure. Yes. So you studied journalism. You start working at a weekly paper, mm-hmm. sort of move after that to the LA Times. When did you realize that food journalism was sort of going to be your beat? Was that pretty early on? It was pretty early on. Um, I was uh, blessed. I had a uh, professor who was a reporter at the Times, and uh, he made the suggestion that I might be able to move into the newsroom through the features department. Okay. And features meant women's pages, food. I'm old enough to have to be that. <laughs> right. And um, so, uh, yeah, so I... I, I reached out to the food editor and she said, Oh, honey, that's not how it works. <laughs> you know, you, uh, you have to go and work in a smaller market and pay your dues. And then you come back to a place like this after 10 or 15 years. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but then she had a nutrition writing opening and it all worked out. Yeah. And you, so you're writing about nutrition and then you go to the LA Times and you're, you're there pre Ruth Reichel. Is that right? Yes, I was. She comes while you're working there. Right. And she sort of, I've read, I think, allowed you some freedom. She saved my life. She saved your life. Can, can you elaborate <laughs> on that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, um, I was pretty miserable. Okay. Um, at the times, um, didn't even have a desk, okay. a place to sit. So I had to move around all the time. Uh, and find a space to sit where somebody was out for the day. And so when Ruth called me into her office to ask uh, what I'd like to be writing about, and I said, no, I think I'd like a desk first. Uh-huh. Um, but I did tell her, I don't know. And she said, go out in the streets of LA and don't come back until you know. Yeah. And so I was gone for three days. I just love telling that story. Wow. Um, and when I came back, I had a story about my Mormon neighbors, and it did not have any recipes. Okay. Which was pretty provocative. Sure. For, for the food section. The food section uh-huh. at that time. And I could see her and Lori, they were thinking through, like, I'm sure they were thinking, how are we going to sell this to this? Um, she was new to the department. She came over from restaurant critic and, um, you know, it's going to be a big change, uh, to run a sec, a story on the cover of the section without any recipes, but she went for it. Yeah. What did that feel like? It was a really incredible um, expression of support. Mm-hmm. Um, she helped me find my voice. Um, she taught me to be a little bit edgy, you know, a little yeah. controversial, um, to take risks, um, but to be competent and confident in what you've done. So, you know, I, I knew I had strong journalism skills. And it's part of the reason why I had such a hard time in the food world. Um, because the food industry was changing, and we were starting to see a lot of first person writing. And that was so contrary to me, um, to my journalism upbringing. And so um, I just wanted to do investigative writing. And she gave me permission to do that. That's great. That's great. So then you go on to the plane, the plane dealer, the Cleveland plane dealer, and uh, where you become the first black woman to hold the position of food editor at, yeah. at any daily newspaper in the country. Right. What was that like? For I'm you? still that. You're still that. No one else has held that position. No. Wow. Yeah. How about that? Wow. And that was in 1991 when mm-hmm. you, you took the reign. I took over. Role. Yeah. And since then there's been no one. What, what was that moment like for you? Did you sort of understand the significance of that? Oh, absolutely. Uh, Ruth and I discussed it Uh uh, quite a bit because I was just coming into my own and we were both so excited about that. Right. Um, And the idea that now I was going to start editing other people meant that I would lose my own voice uh, to help them develop theirs. Sure. Um, But we realized that I would be the first and the only. Um, And at the times I was a... You know, I was going to be invisible. I was, we were, I was part of a staff of 16. Yeah. And so I made that decision, um, to pack up and move to Cleveland, uh, weather, 
the whole thing. You know, it was yeah. just a whole total life change in my whole experience. Yeah. Um, but what I did do was carry with me, um, the food writing philosophy that I developed at the times, which was this pursuit of storytelling for the, um, invisible. Sure. And so I, I made sure that I announced to everyone in my food section that I would be writing about different cultures. You know, mm-hmm. Cleveland was this incredible space with, you know, lots of different communities, um, living side by side. And so, um, I sort of sarcastically went on the cover of the paper and said, don't call me, you know, arguing about, um, why am I writing about the Hungarians and the Poles and the Germans mm-hmm. and the Italians? I'm going to get to everybody. Yeah. Trust me. I, this is my passion and you will all have a voice. Yeah. And that, that was, um, how I carried on when I started under Ruth. Did you get those calls? Oh, yeah. Anyway, yeah, oh, yeah. I, I got them. Yeah. 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 I, and as a matter of fact, I probably didn't say that like that on, sure. on, not verbatim. on, not verbatim <laughs> yeah. on the section, but I did say it, it, it. We had a weekly call in time uh-huh. where people could call in and ask their food questions. And uh-huh. I wasn't typically part of that. The staff took those calls. And uh, I think that was probably when I took that opportunity to say, hang on, you can trust me. I, yeah. I really believe in everybody having a voice and it's just not your turn yet. Yeah. You had that vision. You also were working at The Plain Dealer, which was one of the few publications to still have an actual test kitchen Right at the time. Um, those were sort of dwindling at the time. And there was a test kitchen cook who I think you really impacted you, right, Vera? Yeah, Vera Beck. She meant everything to me. Yeah. Um, she was uh, an incredible cook, but she was not a classically trained cook. I came out of a test kitchen environment at the LA Times where we had a home economics a, a person that worked in there that was a home economist. Okay. Um, and there were two of them. Uh-huh. Right. And so their area of expertise was very precise in food science and food te- and they understood technique. And, sure. and Vera was a home cook. Um, she was a cafeteria type of a cook. Sure. Um, and she did the best that she could do under the circumstances. And, um, I just took a liking to her and she took care of me. Um, I wish she would call on my private line and tell me that she needed me to come into the kitchen for something. And the next thing I knew there was this big spread of, you know, a Southern breakfast uh-huh. that she had made for me. Yeah. It's pretty great. Yeah. Did she open your eyes at all about the world. I mean, you've written before, you actually wrote in the Jemima Code, which we'll talk about in a minute, that later on, after working with her, you came to see that in some ways you were a casualty of the Jemima Code to some to some degree. Did she have that impact on you too? She definitely had an impact on me um, in helping me understand the lost identity, uh-huh. um, my lost food identity. Okay. Um, I grew up in Los Angeles as a beach girl. Um, and as I've described now in Jubilee and Jemima Code, uh, my parents were not deeply connected to the South. Mm-hmm. Um, they wanted to leave behind the pain of the segregation times and, and all of its associated horrors. Uh-huh. And um, with that um, abandonment went out the window a lot of those food habits and practices. And so Vera was deeply rooted in the food of the South. She was from Alabama. And so she would um, challenge me with recipes um, that she was making or questions that she would pose. Yeah. She helped me be more introspective about my own culinary loss. And um, really, I think probably helped formalize the approach that I ultimately took for the Jemima code. Yeah. So at that point, are you collecting cookbooks by black authors? Not yet. Not when you're at the plane dealer. No. When did you sort of become particularly interested in, in that? Now I think today you have 400 something. I have 400 or so. 400. And, you know, this idea of collecting them, of course, as a food editor, you've always got 
a massive uh, mm-hmm. collection. And so there were black cookbooks in there. Right. Um, but I wasn't collecting with any intentionality. Sure. Um, I did begin collecting, um, while at the times there was a black uh, cookbook that appeared in a book giveaway. Okay. Um, and that turned out to be Lena Richard's, uh, cookbook. Um, and so that was, you know, one of the early ones. Um, there was another one that I got while I was working at that little weekly newspaper, the Ebony Cookbook. Okay. So I had books along the way. Sure. Um, I didn't really formalize collecting, um, until that encounter with John Edgerton in Atlanta, um, when I attended a conference as a food journalist. Yeah. And he gave you a specific book, yes. right? Yes, he did. And that's, and what book was that? It's the Kentucky Cookbook, is that it's right? It's the Kentucky Cookbook, right. So, um, uh, one of my last acts as a food writer was to, an, an on-staff food writer was to attend a gathering of the uh, food journalists in Atlanta uh-huh. and Edgerton was one of the speakers. He might've even been the keynote speaker. Okay. And he was the first person that I ever heard, um, commend African American cooks for their contributions to American cooking. Uh-huh. And it was really powerful and moving to me to hear a white man, um, express this kind of gratitude yeah. to African American women that I knew, um, meant so much to me. And all I could think about was Vera during that time. Um, so I went over and I, I visited with him and, um, um, he said that he had something he wanted to share with me and, uh, came back, w- uh, from his briefcase, um, emerged a collection, um, of recipes from an African American woman in Kentucky. Um, Edgerton had just returned from the Library of Congress and he Xeroxed this little pamphlet type book from 1912. Okay. And he said, I'm not sure what I was supposed to do with this, but now I know. Uh huh. And he handed it to me. And like the Lena Richard book, it, you know, it was powerful and meaningful, but still didn't quite know what I was supposed to do with it. Sure. Um, but it did set me on a course of studying with more intentionality, Southern food ways, um, the impact of African Americans on the food of the American South. Yeah. Which culmin, I hate the word culminated because of course this is ongoing work that you're doing, but it sort of first sort of came together for the public, um, in a mass form in the Jemima Code, right. your book. When did you sort of, you coined the term, the phrase Jemima Code, is that right? I did. Um, you know, I, I was, um, part of the founding of Southern Foodways Alliance. Mm-hmm. And through that, I got a bird's eye view of, the real relationships be- that exist between black and white Southerners. And it's not all of what we've been told. Right. There are some really deeply moving and um, important relationships um, that exist within that very painful, difficult history. And um, these were people who I discovered had a great respect and appreciation for one another. But within that, I didn't feel like I had a place, even though I was president. I just felt peculiarly out of uh, sync with the stories they were telling and the people that they were elevating. Um, I couldn't connect with them. And um, it made my upbringing in the West seem even more foreign and less authentic, uh-huh. if, that, if it's possible. You yeah. know, how can you be part of a culture and yet be an inauthentic expression of that? And so um, in order to I, I did what journalists do, right? I started studying, sure. researching my topic. And so I uh, got a borrower's library card at the University of Texas Libraries, and I spent hours researching and reading about um, Southern history yeah. just to get myself up to speed and to be what I hoped would be as conversant as they were naturally mm-hmm. um, about their food culture, about their history, about so many things that are 
South- what what make up Southernness. Sure. And for people who haven't read the Jemima Code or may not be as familiar with your work, can you sort of summarize what we mean when we say the Jemima Code? Sure. So within that process, I discovered that um, I wasn't the only person feeling this way after all. Mm-hmm. And that there seemed to be so much hypocrisy on the pages of Southern food history that everywhere I looked, there was this incredible love for these black women that we had mammified, right? Mm-hmm. We had um, right. taken this idea of a plantation mammy, um, the gone with the wind kind of woman who's a take control, um, bossy authoritarian who makes sure that you even are wearing the appropriate clothes for the day. Uh-huh. And yet somehow she is a buffoon and incapable of any intellectual, um, any, any expressions of her intellect at all. Yeah. And the two things just did not match for me. So I did a little bit more research and more reading. And then that's when I got tuned into this idea of cookbooks. And what I discovered was that there was always two stories running side by side. And that's how I came up with the idea of calling it a code uh-huh. that we, we were in love with Aunt Jemima for, um, her quality and her competency to the point that her face still appears on packages today. Yeah. But at the same time, they, cookbooks that I was encountering published by white women tended to be disparaging of these women. Yeah. Um, the advertisements of them portrayed them in monkey like character. There were just all of these really negative expressions, like a backlash or something. Like as soon as they would express love for them, then they had to turn around and express hate for them. It was yeah. very peculiar. And so it was this dual message that I kept encountering um, uh, in Southern history that led me to this idea of the Jemima Code mm-hmm. um, and the fact that a code is designed to um, communicate one type of message to one group, like doctors communicating with pharmacists and, sure. and the middleman, the patient doesn't quite know exactly what this um, prescription holds. Right. That's kind of how I felt about the cookbooks that I was encountering about yeah. black women. Like they were telegraphing, white women were telegraphing to each other that we all have these great cooks and they've produced amazing results for us. But isn't it a shame that they're just so inarticulate and so unintelligible and unable to convey the recipes that are in their heads? So I read, I went on a search in the library. I read um, the slave narratives that were, um, con- the interviews that were conducted in the thirties. Uh-huh. I read poetry, uh-huh. music lyrics. Um, I, I looked for expressions of black competency and excellence anywhere I could find it. And, um, one of the compelling things I discovered in reading the slave narratives was that those people were expressing contradictions to the story that was being told in the pages of these cookbooks. Sure. And, and then the black cookbooks sort of did the same thing, right? They start to, it's almost as if the people are aware that they were being disparaged. I, I don't know, but, uh-huh. right. but it's as if they knew that and they wanted to make sure a different story was being told about them. Yeah. And it, it wasn't exclusive to culinary arts and to cooking, right? I mean, I'm sure as you're studying other types of content, I mean, the disparagement of black people was not exclusive to in the kitchen, right? I mean, right. it was happening across all aspects of life. Oh, absolutely. My area was food and having been um, so deeply involved with Southern Foodways Alliance and its mission to promote the diverse food culture of the South, um, it became part of my mission to use food as a tool to help bring us together. And so I was able to 
really focus in on food and cooking. And somewhere along the way, decided that cookbooks might be the way for me to find more stories yeah. um, for more truth um, in these people's words that wasn't filtered through others or that their recipes weren't as weren't transcribed by others. I was really looking for more first person interviews um, similar to what I had read in those slave narratives. Sure. And one of the things that was so compelling to me was to find authors and, and, and the enslaved as well, who would talk about what Michael Rollman called, um, a mental mise en place. Okay. And those of us in the food world understand that as a classical term, meaning to have everything in its place before you get started cooking. Right. And these women knew what that was. They, oh, there is an old woman, um, from North Carolina who said, everything I does, I does in my head. Uh-huh. It's all brain work. Um, and because she couldn't, she wasn't allowed to read or write. Um, she had to carry around all of those recipes and all of that knowledge. And so it looked like a mistake. It looked like a magical voodoo, like they had a natural instinctive ability to cook when yeah. the reality is they were like you and me. They yeah. probably apprenticed with someone who taught them. They began to use their hands as measuring tools and objects in their environment, right? And so they knew how many eggs it took to make a particular dish. But sure. if the white woman who's trying to capture those recipes for her book asks her how many eggs and the cook says, I don't know. It doesn't mean she doesn't know. It means it depends upon the attitude of the chicken that day. Right. Yeah. And it wasn't a time where we could just go reach into the cooler and pull out a dozen large, similarly sized eggs. Sure. You know, yeah. you got what you got in the in-house. Yeah. So the knowledge was in the in the minds of the cooks, they were just not accredited for it. Yeah. Yeah, that was one of the things that struck me most about your work is that concept of this mythical power, that that way of sort of applauding the black cooks while mm-hmm. also dismissing them in the same breath. This idea that they had this mythical power and it wasn't actually coming from a place of skill or knowledge or technique. So you published the Jemima Code and pulled together or featured about 200 of the cookbooks that mm-hmm. you've studied. Did you have to fight to get this work out in the world? Like oh, these have been people who have been dismissed and in some ways forgotten in for years. I absolutely, um, you know, in recent days, because Jubilee has been um, so highly acclaimed. Yes. Um, people are asking me whether or not my experience of being, um, marginalized in the publishing world isn't just an example of the way the publishers reject projects all the time. Right. And unfortunately I don't have the privilege of looking at it that way because I have this history of my ancestors who were not able to be published, who took their work to private publishers or print shops Mm -hmm. or however they could get it published Mm -hmm. to, to, um, to refute the established identity that was being created for them. And I had the same problem, even though I'd worked for Ruth Reichel and been at the top of the game. And as we said at the beginning, I'm the only black food editor still. Yeah. And yet there wasn't a publisher or a literary agent that would take on my project. Um, initially, you initially, had, no everyone interest. Was saying no. Everyone was either saying no, or I actually was, um, contracted and then I just lost the contract. Okay. Um, and I proposed the Jemima code in multiple ways. I, I wanted that content yeah. out there. Once I organized the, the, the recipes and saw the message that these people could convey of hope, mm-hmm. um, and the story of celebration and optimism that it, you know, c- 
created. Yeah. I just would like everybody would want to know that story. Um, and so I suggested it as a cookbook. I, I rewrote it as a collection of essays. I tried everything. Sure. And when that all failed, um, the beauty of time was that, um, the internet was just coming on pretty strongly. And some young folks said to me, you should just take that to the internet and create a blog. Yeah. And I'm a journalist, you know, die hard. And so <laughs> there was no way I was going to write in the first person. Um, but they convinced me. Yeah. And, um, we created, um, the Jemima code blog. It was intended to be a one year project and it was going to appear on food day on Wednesdays. And I would just tell a different story every week until I ran out of stories or until people said this was boring and they don't want to read it anymore. And instead the university of Texas came along and said, I wanted to shake that down. We really like it and we want to publish it. Yeah. I'm so happy that they did. Me too. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with the second half of our conversation with Tony Tipton Martin, author of Jubilee, Recipes from Two Centuries of African-American Cooking. Every Tuesday on Salt and Spine, we love sitting down with another of your and my favorite cookbook authors to tell the stories behind cookbooks. From Jacques Pepin and Nigella Lawson to Samin Nostrat and Alison Roman to today's guest, Tony Tipton Martin, Salt and Spine is the leading podcast featuring in-person interviews with your favorite authors. Plus, we published a delicious and exclusive recipes, hold cookbook giveaways for listeners like you, we host incredible live shows, and so much more. Salt and Spine truly brings cookbooks to life, and we can only do it thanks to listeners like you. You can join the Salt and Spine community today and support our effort to bring you top-notch interviews and the best cookbook content, starting at just $2 a month. Find out more and join the Salt and Spine community at patreon.com backslash salt and spine. That's P-A-T-R reon.com backslash salt and spine. And now we're headed into the kitchen with Salt and Spine kitchen correspondent Sarah Varney, who picked up some inspiration from Tony Tipton Martin's recipe for low country shrimp and grits. While Tony notes that today we see shrimp and grits listed on menus everywhere, the dish has historically gone by different names. Referred to as breakfast shrimp with hominy by historian Arturo Schomburg, or as shrimp gravy or smuttered shrimp in the Golagichi region, or breakfast shrimp with tomatoes to some Louisiana Creoles. But whatever you call it, our kitchen correspondent Sarah Varney was ready to tackle it. Here's Sarah from Albany, New York. I've had plenty of shrimp and grits while visiting relatives and working in balmy southern states. But when I picked up Tony Tipton Martin's cookbook in Albany, New York on a freezing winter day, her recipe for low country shrimp and grits seemed like the perfect way to warm up. Cold. The best place to buy shrimp in Albany is a grocery store called the Asian Supermarket, a pan-Asian food utopia on a bustling suburban avenue. My partner Jesse and I walk past piles of persimmons, pomelos the size of football helmets, and bundles of bok choy. But when we turn the corner, we see a fish counter covered in slabs of swordfish, buckets of live frogs, and piles of different sized shrimp. What do you think, Jess? The small or the big? Big size, please. Where did this shrimp come from? Come on to Honduras. From where? Honduras. Honduras. While we wait for our shrimp, the customer next to us orders a live fish, which flaps around on the scale. Live fish. What kind is it? A carp. Okay. Thank you so much. All right. Have a good day. Bye bye. Thanks. 
Back in our kitchen, after an afternoon of sledding and cross-country skiing in the frigid cold, we're ready to dive into the recipe. So I think this will be fairly within our (laughs) skill set. Okay, it says it's outstanding served at breakfast, but we're going to serve it for dinner. Jake, do you want to come devein some shrimp? This is Jake. Say hi, Jake. No, he's 15, so when you put a microphone in his face, he stops (laughs) speaking. Okay. The water is a boil, so you need to put the grits in. Gradually whisk in the grits one tablespoon at a time, stirring until blended. Whisking, whisking, whisking. With the grits cooking and Jake grating a block of cheese, Jesse has taken over the unpleasant job of prepping the shrimp. <laughs> I think that the deveining is you're pulling out the intestines, the poop shoot. It feels a little gross now that you've talked about its purpose. <laughs> we fire up the stove and fry a few slabs of bacon. And then Jake measures out the flour and salt that we'll use to coat the shrimp. Well, that's what you're doing right now. You're bre- You're going to bread the shrimp. All right, and now you just take shrimp, toss it in there. All right. Just like that. All right, so what do we have? Where are we right now, Jess? What do we have going on? Uh, bacon is pretty much done. I think grits are pretty much done. Career is pretty much done. Child <laughs> entering his 15th year of making fun of me. We stir a few tablespoons of butter and six tablespoons of cream into the grits, which is starting to thicken. This is not a low cholesterol meal. Low carb. This is not low carb or a low cholesterol. And then there's that moment when I haven't read far enough ahead in the recipe, and suddenly there's a lot to do. Yes. What? What? Wow, you are. You <laughs> have two jobs: talk into a microphone and read the book. Okay, I and need you a have qu- two <laughs> jobs. I need a quarter cup of veggie stock. Kind of ASAP. No, we need more. Oh, my God. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so it says add the shrimp and saute for two minutes. Yeah, why don't you turn them over, Jakey? The green onions are going in. Now red pepper flakes. Uh, Quarter teaspoon. Quarter teaspoon? Yeah, but quickly because everything is is burning. Nothing. And then the garlic. Ah, crap. That's the problem. It's like it's like the, it's like the moment when everything has to come together. Okay, now Jesse, we need the um, we need that other stock. Okay, so the shrimp are looking nice and pink. Stir in the remaining quarter cup of stock and cook, stirring until the shrimp gravy is smooth and thick. Two three minutes, and then we're going to stir in the lemon juice and the minced parsley. We ladle the grits into bowls and pour the shrimp and gravy on top and then sprinkle on bacon and parsley. All right. We are ready. Cheers, everybody. Thank you. All right. Dig in. It really tastes right. lemon. Mm. The final the one. And the thing I like about it, it's not too cheesy, even though we put a lot of cheese in it. sauce makes the whole dish. It's like, I would like double everything. Yeah. It's creamy it's savory it's got a little bit of a sour bite to it because of the lemon it's really delicious yeah and the garlic's nice too on that frigid winter night our bellies were full and our bodies warm we ate everything in sight and had no shrimp and grits left over for breakfast (laughs) 
That's Sarah Varney and her partner Jesse making the low country shrimp and grits from Tony Tipton Martin's Jubilee. Tony's version of the recipe, she notes, is inspired by Houston chef Chris Williams, whose restaurant Lucille's is named after his grandmother, cookbook author Lucille Bishop Smith. And Tony's tips for perfect grits come from Dora Charles's cookbook, A Real Southern Cook in Her Savannah Kitchen. Salt and Spine is proud to have storytelling partners like Edible San Francisco. In the latest issue, read about how climate change is already impacting seafood in the Bay Area, plus a look at upcoming cookbooks by Bay Area authors and some of the best sustainable seafood cookbooks. Subscribe now to ensure you don't miss compelling stories on how San Francisco eats at edibleSanFrancisco.com. And now back to our conversation with Tony Tipton Martin, author of Jubilee. So we're here to talk about Jubilee too, which is, as we've mentioned, the the follow up to the Jemima Code. So when you when you finally set to work on publishing the Jemima Code, you decided not to include recipes. You knew you sort of knew at the time that you would follow it up with a recipe book. Is that, that was right? the hope? Yeah. That was the hope. That yeah. was the hope. And even with that experience of um, being um, uh, having my work disregarded, mm-hmm. I still had the hope that um, I, d- I did try to cram as much into the Jemima Code <laughs> sure. as possible. And my editor was like, "Listen, there will be a second book. It's going to be okay. Uh-huh. You don't have to try to get it all in here." Yeah. But we knew that the material, um, the content was pretty controversial and at least maybe not controversial, but complex, uh-huh. right? It was yeah. going to be eye-opening to so many people and challenge so many ways that people were brought up and their own thinking about their family and their recipes. And what about this black woman that worked in our home? And, you know, we knew all of that. Yeah. And so we intentionally did not include recipes in the Jemima Code. And I think that was a really wise decision because now people are ready for the Jubilee and people have embraced Jubilee in a way that's even more, um, that's been even a bigger outpouring than that of that for the Jemima code. Yeah. Um, and maybe it is because the recipes are there and the, the cooking, um, is an expression of something we can all share. Yeah. Yeah. There's over a hundred recipes inspired from recipes that you found through your research mm-hmm. through the Jemima code, many of which, most of which, all of which you've updated in some way or yes. you've, you've modernized in some way, but you also include the original recipe yeah. in most instances. So people can sort of see how you've adapted it or how it might have just naturally evolved over the course of history. Can you tell us a little bit about your process of putting together these recipes for I Jubilee? I just love that part. Yeah. You know, it was just, it was my way of giving a window into the books without, uh, because I know that people can't touch them and can't see them. Right. And everyone on the, you know, on the road sees my passion for these folks. And I thought if I could just give a glimpse into those pages of the books, then people could also share in that love that I have for the authors. And so, um, what we did was, um, distilled a list that was published in the thirties, um, for, um, what was considered to be an African American canon. And, um, it followed along two strains of cooking. One would be the, the survival cooking of the slave cabin. Mm -hmm. And the other one would have been for the folks that were doing all of the work who would have been informally or formally trained um, in the kitchen as apprentices, um, by the mistress, but these were people with educations. Mm -hmm. Um, and they're not people we tend to think about the plantation beginning with the plantation cook, um, thinking about the people that own, owned oyster houses, people who then in freedom became caterers and bartenders and mixologists and train cooks and ranch cooks. I mean, there's just this incredible, um, list of food professionals that we have tended to totally 
ignore um, as as part of the food as part of our food history. Yeah. Um, and so um, with from this list that existed in the 30s, we called down 100 dishes. That list had about 600 on it. Okay. Um, and being the good journalist, I've always got to start with some formulaic, you know, some piece of truth. Okay. Um, that yeah. I work with. And so I started with that Schomburg, uh, the list was created by Arthur Schomburg, who was a, um, important, um, scholar of the thirties. Uh-huh. Um, and, um, then I followed the recipes throughout time. And so let's say there was a recipe for, uh, batter bread, which is what it would have been called in the 19th century. Okay. Um, I followed batter bread to see what happened to it over 200 years by looking at all by of the looking books at all of the recipes that you could find through today yeah okay um i chose certain books that i knew were like you know benchmarks um those that were consistent and the lewis um sure. this ebony cookbook from the 40s there was several that had uh, some criteria that i thought just made them authoritative yeah um and if the dish continued to sh- persist across the 200 years and still appear today, then that was how I decided it was part of what we might one day call an African-American canon. Yeah. I'm not ready yet to say we have an African-American full canon because we didn't know that we had the Jemima Code cookbooks either. Sure. And so my hope is that one day students and others who are inspired by these stories will perhaps find a whole nother strain of, of information and sources to tell us more about what it means to have cooked African-American food. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, they're still being discovered, right? Because Mrs. Fisher's was considered the oldest. That's right. For a while until recently. Right. When, when more were discovered or an older, an older book was discovered. Right. Right. She was considered the oldest until, uh, we just till, um, 1866, Melinda Russell, who was a free woman of color. Okay. And her book is now the oldest recipe book. Okay. Um, but the oldest book in the collection dates to 1827. And he, the author of that book was, um, the butler, okay. uh, in the governor's mansion. And it was not, it hasn't been recorded, uh, so much as a cookbook, um, because there's lots of instruction about, uh, management of a household. Sure. But once I discovered that the dishes persisted, then it was just a matter of just looking at what caused them to change. So back to the batter bread, depending upon, um, the cook's, region, she might put blueberries in it. Mm-hmm. And then we'd have blueberry muffins. If she had nuts, then we'd have nut bread Yeah, from her natural environment. Um, if she was in Florida, she might have orange bread uh, because she was making orange preserves, yeah. you know, banana bread. Um, and so the same baseline dish that starts in 1800, we could trace it all the way through today. Yeah. Did the title Jubilee come easily to you? Yes. Yeah. It did. Um, initially, uh, wanted to call it something like, uh, cooking with joy. Okay. Or the joy of cooking. Uh huh. Um, because I was really determined to express the celebratory nature of this food and the hospitality. You know, when we think about these people and the work they were doing, they were largely in service to others and expressing hospitality. Yeah. And so I want, to people to think about this food joyously, even though it does derive from a difficult part of our history. Um, even though the stereotypes were created to divide us, there is all of that that's negative. And I'm not here to try and put a smiley face on, um, American slavery. Right. But what I am here to do is encourage us to be able to look beyond the concepts that were created to divide us. 
Yeah. To realize that the water that came out of those fountains was the same water, whether they put a label on it as colored in white yeah. or not. Right. Um, and this food we have all shared in it and in its creation. And it's just time for us to acknowledge the black people where they're participating too. Yeah. So we talked a little bit about the struggles to get the Jemima code published. Have you seen the cookbook industry changing? I mean, it's still a predominantly white industry, predominantly white, predominantly male industry historically. And I would posit today still, but have you, have you seen like moves in the right direction from the industry or, or do we have a lot of work to do there? Well, I, I was having this conversation recently. Um, we have made some strides uh-huh. um, and the attention that Jubilee is receiving is certainly part of that. Yeah. Because there were black books published before. I can't speak to whether they were what quality, but Jubilee is definitely on everyone's radar. Yeah. In a way that I'm not sure that others have been or would be otherwise. I think the problem we've created, though, is um, illustrated by my search for a black creative team. Yeah. Um, when I went under contract with Clarkson Potter, my request was to have an all-black creative team. Sure. And it took us a year to find Jarrell. Yeah, Jarrell got your photographer. Guy, my photographer. Yeah. And thank God we did. She's yeah. just incredible. She's as much a part of this book and her passion and her love for these authors. It just comes through. It's just on the pages. They're beautiful photos. But there's not a lot of, there aren't other photographers that have in-studio plated food experience. We have lots of black photographers who do great blog or social media pictures. Mm-hmm. We have people who are doing portraits. Mm-hmm. We have people doing a location. But the idea of styling food and uh, being a prop stylist and all of those aspects of what it takes to put together a, a book like Jubilee, it's lacking. So, you know, that... You have to go to the end state. Like, how can we criticize the award givers if we haven't cultivated an environment for there to be nominees? Uh-huh. And there aren't nominees because there's no images of others. There's no role models for people to see. So we're not creating the next generation. Um, we're doing better. Yeah. I think social media um, and the Internet has um, removed some of the barriers. Um, but it does put pressure on the next generation to be well-trained, to be ready yeah. um, for the opportunities that are coming. Yeah. And that's what ultimately my work, you know, my work is um, a mission with two purposes. One is to um, break down the stereotypes that divide us, but also to break down those stereotypes so that we can see the role models and create opportunities for young people for their own economic independence because we've sort of left them out there believing that there's only these wild extremes of what's possible. You're either um, an athlete or professional or you're, you know, involved in illicit behaviors. I mean, we just, we're not giving kids the idea that food world has so much diversity and so much opportunity for them. They could become photographers, stylists, architects, restaurant designers, Yes. Invent. They could invent food, be manufacturers, product designers. There's just so much that we haven't shown young people. But but I can definitely say that it's it's changing. Yeah. What role, from your perspective as a person who has studied cookbooks, in particular cookbooks by Black authors, so extensively, what role do you think cookbooks, these you know beautiful printed cookbooks, play in our society today? I think cookbooks leave a written record. Um, I was only able to refute the history 
that had been written in so many other ways because I found another source. Sure. I found the source of those voiceless people. Um, and so cookbooks are an opportunity for people to tell their own stories. And, um, when internet goes down and digital media evaporates and there's no record of all of this stuff that's on a blog post right, right now, um, we're all going to be looking around wishing we had a book. Yeah. And had, you know, a tangible paper product that we could hold in our hand. And so cookbooks mean everything to me. They'll be the basis for every other project that I do going forward. Yeah. Okay. Last question before we move to our game. Is there a recipe in Jubilee that you're proudest of? I don't like to ask favorites, but one that just really, you feel really proud that it's there. Well, I was all prepared for the favorite question. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Sorry. That's not fair. It's hard to pick a favorite, but maybe it's even harder to pick one that you're well, proudest hard, of. It's hard to pick proud because the, each one of the recipes in Jubilee was chosen because of the story that it tells. Sure. Each one is identified with a particular person that we, whose name we need to know. Yeah. Or a technique that we haven't thought mm-hmm. was connected to African Americans. I'll probably be sorry later. One that really struck me not to not to answer for you, but one that struck me is the it's a plant is it a plantain chip recipe? Mm-hmm. Um, but the history of the potato chip. Oh yeah, is just a story that is not known. I think the story of the potato chip is a real. It's one of those fun stories, but there's so many of them. Right. Um, this idea that there was a man who was cooking as a formerly enslaved person um, in a restaurant, and as a response to a snooty customer, fried the potatoes a little crisper, came up with this um, dish of fried chips. And there are stories like that. Um, I was going to actually piggyback on the Times and mention the celery. The braised oh, celery. Yes. Yeah. Um, Which Sam Sifton the, made the it Sam's, for his Thanksgiving yes, table, and he right? He did. <laughs> and um, he's infatuated with it. And that's one of those dishes that kept appearing across the books. Um, but the name of it was always different. Okay. As many of them were. To the point where you'd get to the soul era and these dishes would be called smothered. Everything was smothered. Uh-huh. Um, which has a homey country feel sure. to it. But when you looked at the technique of how it was made, it wasn't smothered. It was actually braised. The difference between smothering and braising might seem like a very nuanced thing to consider. But when you're trying to give people credit for their work, I can assure you that today's modern chef would want to be identified for the difference between a dish on his menu that was either smothered or braised or in gravy. Right. Right. Gravy right. is not sauce. Right. Um, and, and so that braised celery story is, is a fun one because we tend to think about, um, we think about dishes that are rooted in canned, like that have a canned soup base. Sure. Um, cream and mushroom soup or right. something like mm-hmm. that. Um, we don't think of those as very sophisticated, but what we have to, do is place ourselves back in time and realize that if you were the African-American cook who had to make cream and mushroom soup from scratch, yeah, and then, and you had to braise and reduce those mushrooms and create the bechamel sauce and the whole thing, then the idea that you could suddenly buy that in a can was an expression of your freedom, your liberation from the kitchen. Yeah. And, um, and it meant you had access to, to the kinds of ingredients that other women had. Right. Um, it's only now that we see that as sort of dumbing down our cooking, but, right. but at the time that a dish like braised celery would have appeared on the menu, um, there's just a lot of other social, you have to put it in the social context because there's a lot of other things happening sure. that we don't think about today. Sure. 
So we always end with a little game. So okay. I thought we'd play a quick round um, with our cards here. So there's four stacks here. Um, you can draw from within each of the four stacks. But let's say you're having a dinner party. You've got the Jemima Code cookbook collection at your disposal to cook from. And you've got these ingredients at hand. Maybe you can tell us what you might make and what books or authors you might turn to for inspiration for this dinner party. Oh, that's really funny. So part of the reason why I never went on um, the phone calls at the Plain Dealer was because I felt like I didn't have the knowledge to just create a recipe from thin air. But my family says, that's when you cook the, the best, Mom. Yeah. Okay, do you want me to tell you what I've pulled Yes, here? let's tell us what we have at our disposal today. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, my vegetable is carrot. Okay. My flavor is mustard. Mm, okay. My protein is shrimp, and my secret ingredient is Taylor ham. Okay. What do we feel like you would serve at a Jemima Code dinner party? Well, I would definitely make the barbecue shrimp that's on the cover of the book. Yes. So a cover of Jubilee. On the cover yes. of Jubilee. So that's a no-brainer there. I love roasted vegetables. And so um, there's an amazing carrot puree. Okay. In yes. Jubilee that has... Um, its secret ingredient is actually rum. And that's kind of a, you either like it or you don't. Sure. So I've heard that some people are just infatuated with it. Wendell Brock uh, at the Atlanta Journal loved uh-huh. it, but other people don't. Yeah. So I made sure that I said to everyone, put it in a little bit at a time, taste yeah. it and see what you think. So that's easy. We've got the br- yeah. the, uh, the, the carrot, the pureed carrots. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I've got my appetizer and the shrimp and I've got my sure. vegetables. Now I need a main dish. Uh-huh. We have ham mustard. and mustard. Okay. So I would rub my, I would rub some potatoes with mustard and rosemary okay. and olive oil and roast those with chicken. With chicken. Okay. And, uh, make sweet potato biscuits from Jubilee and put little slivers of, uh, Taylor ham inside. Yeah. Like country ham. Yeah. Uh huh. So I've got a protein, a vegetable and two appetizers. Sure. Actually. But that's okay. That sounds like the makings of a great dinner party, I would say. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that's great. That all sounds delicious. This was so much fun. Thank you so much for joining us, Tony. That is fun. Thank you so much for having me. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all of our episodes on saltandspine.com. We just redid our website, so if you're having some issues, please let us know. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. And of course, you can join the Salt and Spine community and support our show at patreon.com backslash saltandspine. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart, and producer Madeline Forbes. Salt and Spine's kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney. The Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen offers hands-on classes and events for home cooks. Find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Edible San Francisco, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you tired of political podcasts, peddling horse paste and man supplements? 
Then listen to The Bituation Room with me, Francesca Fiorentini, featuring progressive comedians, activists, and experts. We break down the week's news with plenty of laughs and ridiculousness, which we desperately need, while diving deep into juicy left topics like remaking the police, abortion rights, and why Jeff Bezos is a cyborg. Get The Bituation Room right to your ear holes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, anywhere except Facebook. Podcasts on Facebook are going away June 3rd, so consider yourself poked. The Bituation Room with Francesca Fiorentini. If I can't laugh, it's not my revolution. A-cast, 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 A-cast recommends. recommends.